Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. <laughs> I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thank you for joining us. I just finished talking with Wilt Edema about his new book, The Resurrected Skeleton, From Zhuangzi to Lushun. This came out in 2014 with Columbia University Press. And this is a book that really works exceptionally well on a number of different levels. So on top of being just a really, really pleasurable read, it's really, really fun to read through. It's also a really satisfying scholarly resource and is going to make what I think um, is going to be a really, really successful resource for teaching as well. And you'll hear about the latter toward the end of the interview. Now, it's a book that takes us through the emergence and transformation of a particular motif through a number of different narrative genres. So very, very broadly speaking, and you'll hear much more specific details um, in the course of the conversation, it's a story um, about, or it's a motif that traces Master Zhuang, Zhuangzi, as he comes across a skeleton or a skull on the side of the road and resurrects it. And there's lots of different um, manifestations and, and versions of this and, and ways of retelling what happens afterwards, why it happens that way um, over the course of the stories in the book. So it's really, really useful, not just as a way to trace this particular story, but also um, it's useful because Wilt takes us into the different genres, right? The different prose and um, verse genres and dramatic genres that this story is told in. And kind of gives us a glimpse into what the nature and the particular use of that specific genre does to transform the nature of the story, really the way it's told and and what's told and how it's told. So it's really, really interesting. It's also really kind of hilariously funny at some points of the book, and I highly recommend it. Um, So it it was such a pleasure to talk with Wilt about this. I had a lot of fun, not just reading the book, but also talking with him. And I hope you um, also enjoy the conversation. So um, enjoy the book, enjoy the conversation, and thank you as always for listening. I'm here today to talk with Wilt Edema about his new book, The Resurrected Skeleton. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Wilt, and thanks so much for talking with me today, for writing such a great book, and also for navigating the difference in our time zones. It's really a pleasure to have you here, and I'm really looking forward to it. Well, it's a pleasure talking to you. So, Wilt, could you start us off by saying just a little bit about your background, and specifically, how did you come to work on Chinese literature and the study of Chinese literature? Well, when I was in high school, I didn't want to become a high school teacher, but I wanted to do something with language, culture, mm-hmm. and so I ended up choosing Chinese as my major, and I studied in a European context, which means that if you decide to study Chinese, you go to a Chinese department, and all your classes are in Chinese. Mm-hmm. But this was in Leiden, so this was the European sonological tradition that first you learn to read, 
hopefully you learn to speak. And eventually, once you have worked on a language for a number of years, you will choose a field. Now, in my case, I hesitated between literature, what I liked, and sociology, what I liked too. And I first started out as somebody working on contemporary China. But because of a certain opening on department, I switched after a few years of uh, working on contemporary China to teaching classical Chinese and Chinese literature. And I've been happy ever after. Great. So the book that we're talking about today collects and translates and also introduces a series of texts that embody the development of the story of Master Zhuang. And we'll talk about that story um, in a bit, I'm sure. There are, um, well, in, in addition to an introduction that takes us all the way to um, sort of third century, second century, third century rhapsodies on skulls, the actual texts that are included and translated um, are three 17th century texts, two short ballads from the 19th century or later, and one modern adaptation of this story by Lu Shun, in addition to several appendices that provide translations of a bunch of related texts. So how did you come to this particular topic? Can you situate um, your decision to write about this and to create a book-length object focused on this particular story and its translations within the larger scope of your work? Well, there are two elements. One is my interest in drama, and the other is my interest in popular ballads. Now, starting from my interest in drama, uh, together with Steve West, I've done a lot of translations of uh, Yuan Dynasty drama. And when you look at the materials we have about uh, performance, uh, the theater, entertainment of the period from 1100 to 1450, one of the most intriguing elements is a painting of a skeleton performing with a little skeleton puppet by a famous Song Dynasty uh, painter. And I've used that also, that painting for the uh, front illustration of the book. Mm -hmm. And that painting has intrigued many people over the years. It has intrigued art historians. It has intrigued people who are interested in uh, theater history. It has intrigued people who have uh, worked on Chinese religion. And many, many years ago, in the early 1990s, I did an article on that painting. And in that context, I looked into the various materials related to skeletons and skulls in Chinese culture. Chinese culture does not like skeletons and skulls. They signify death. They are unlucky, and so it's not the most popular uh, kind of material. You have really have to look in all kinds and nooks and crannies to find materials. But one of the things I came across was the existence of the legend that Master Zhuang had not only spoken to a skull or had appeared and then 
had had a dream meeting with a skull, as narrated in the Chuangzi, but that there was a later legend about Master Chuang coming across a complete skeleton, bringing the skeleton back to life, and getting into a fight with the skeleton, because the skeleton, finding himself naked and without a penny, thinks that Master Chuang has robbed him and takes him to the magistrate where Master Zhuang turns him back into a skeleton, which turns the magistrate into a believer. Mm-hmm. Now, knowing that that story existed in the 16th uh, century version did not mean that it was easily accessible because uh, apparently it was not that version had not been preserved in China, or if it had been preserved in China, it had not been reprinted. It was available in Japan. I finally got a a photocopy of that text, but that was so poor that even though working on it uh, with Professor Tsung Yun Yi from National Taiwan University, did not get me very far. Mm-hmm. But I always kept the interest of wanting to do something with that text. And thanks to the digital digitalization of rare materials, now the Chinese text of the main text I translated is available on the web in a wonderful copy from Tokyo University. And so I suddenly had a good text to work with. And uh, that is a Taoqing. And a Taoqing is a narrative ballad on a Taoist topic as it was developed by the preachers of Chuanjun Taoism in the 13th and 14th and 15th century. And one of the topics was the story of Chuanjun's meeting with the skeleton. And I have been working over the last few years uh, that's an old passion of mine on Chinese narrative ballads, the different genres, and now to have the opportunity. Now I had a good text. I definitely wanted to translate that text. But looking at all the other adaptations of the text, I found them so interesting also in the shifting focus of satire and so on that I decided to make one complete book out of it and Columbia University Press was willing to publish it. That's how it happened. <laughs> Great, thank you. So the introduction of the book actually really helpfully introduces the basic scope of this story, of which we'll see many variations and some actually really, really funny um, and some really disturbing variations as we move through the book. And it also talks um, quite a bit about the emergence of the story in the context of the proselytizing activities of the founder of Chuanjin Taoism, um, Wang Chongyang, in the 12th century. So you talk a little bit about that, and it's um, quite helpful, I think, for the reader to understand the use of especially songs and poems and other forms of storytelling about skeletons, and this skeleton in particular in the context of that proselytizing. But since you've um, already kind of gestured toward or mentioned this kind of text, the Daoqing text, and this in fact forms the first chapter of the book, let's get directly to that. 
So the first chapter of the book introduces us to two examples of this kind of text, and this text that you translate as a, a kind of sentiments of the way, Daoqing text. And the first one is easily, I think, the longest um, text in the book, and it's the kind of our introduction, um, really, to the scope of this story. This is Du Hui's text, Master Zhuang, Sighs Over the Skeleton in Northern and Southern Lyrics and Songs, and it's in two parts. Now, this is the most detailed account, uh, account of the encounter with the skeleton, and frankly, its lack of gratitude once it's been reanimated. We'll, we'll talk about that. Um, and you, you talk about this in the context of um, kind of embodying the wide circulation of this legend in the Ming. So it's unclear, as you tell us, when in the Ming this was produced, but at least um, by 1626, it was in wide uh, circulation. So because um, uh, you've already kind of mentioned the nature of this text, and it's quite important, can you introduce for listeners um, what is this kind of text, this Daoqing text, and what's important for us to understand about the form of this text in order to understand the work that it's doing for this particular version of the story? Well, in the Chinese tradition of prosimetric storytelling, storytelling that alternates between prose and verse, uh, the equivalent of what we would call an epic tradition in the West, Tauching is a relatively minor genre. And when you talk to specialists in Chinese literature and mention Tauching, most of them, first of all, will think of songs. Songs that uh, spread a message that life is short and you better prepare for life eternal as soon as possible because otherwise you will end up as a skeleton by the roadside. Mm -hmm. And as long as you have not become aware of that need to devote yourself to a religious life, you are actually not more than a living skeleton. You may look like a human being, but you are spiritually dead. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, quite a message. And apparently, Wang Chung-yang, the founder of Chuanjian uh, Taoism, used paintings of skeletons to spread that message. You may die any moment, and up as a skeleton, so better convert now to the truth, devote yourself to a life of religious exercises to achieve a mystic union with the way which is equivalent to an eternal life. And uh, it's not quite sure when that preaching of showing people a skeleton uh, turns into telling a story of the meeting of Zhuangzi with a skeleton. Probably sometime during the Yuan Dynasty. And from the beginning of the 16th century, we have long sets of songs on the theme of Zhuangzi's meeting with the skeleton in which Zhuangzi questions the skeleton. Who are you? Mm -hmm. Are you male? Are you female? Are you a student? Are you a peasant? Are you a farmer? Are you a artisan? He goes through every possible 
every possibility of social life, what kind of being were you? Mm-hmm. And I make a comparison there with the uh, dance of death, where you also have, at roughly in the same time in Europe, this obsession with all types in society will have to die and will turn into skeletons. Mm-hmm. So there is a comparative uh, element to it. Right. Now, the other interesting thing about the genre is that Yes, indeed, it started from songs, and that is still quite visible in the text. Mm-hmm. In most prosimetric genres, the prose versions, of course, are always the same, but the first sections are in seven-syllable line verse, mm-hmm. long stretches of the same kind of verse. The Tao Ching contain a few passages like that. But most of the time, the first passages are songs to a great variety of tunes. So in performance, this must be in a very lively type of uh, performance, making great demands on the uh, musical uh, qualities, the singing qualities of the performer. Uh, You have to know all these different tunes and you have to be able to sing them well in order to uh, entertain your audience. Mm -hmm. So I can actually imagine um, this creates a particular challenge as a translator, right? I mean, the form of the text is actually, in this case, really, really interesting. It's sort of, as you mentioned, it incorporates songs, poems, prose passages, and and really, like as you're reading through, there are directions for the reader, right? Recite a poem, sing to the tune of a particular song, um, etc. So I can imagine that was, um, I mean, that that presents particular kinds of challenges when you're translating something like this. Is Was there anything notable about, for you, the process of translating um, in light of this multiplicity of forms, of sort of sonic and narrative forms um, that are embodied in this particular text? Well, uh, I don't know to what extent you have noticed, but I try to show it through these differences through typographical means. Right. If I have a passage, the first passage in seven syllable lines where every line has exactly the same length, then I try to produce a translation where every every line is roughly the same length. Mm -hmm. Never is exactly the same like in Chinese with seven syllables, but at least I try to give it that same. Mm-hmm. roughly the same length to each line. If you have songs where one line may have two syllables, the other seven, then I try to reflect that also in the shape of the translation. Again, a perfect imitation is impossible. I neglect rhyme because that would make it way too difficult. Right. And... Uh, But I do hope that readers will see that if I have a number of songs to the same tune, that a basic layout of the lines, a short line, a long line, two short lines, another long line, a final long line, is the same. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's about all one can do. It's... uh, 
the languages are so different uh, mm -hmm. that it becomes very difficult. And of course, and that's always for a translator, you hope there is a kind of natural rhythm to what you translate when it comes to these songs and these first passages, which even in English is uh, notable. So thank you so much. Um, so what I'm going to do is super quickly take us through just the the bare bones, uh, pun intended, of the story for listeners so that we can kind of talk about how this changes and varies over the course of these texts. All right. So in the first part, we have Master Zhuang setting out on the journey. He encounters a skeleton. He starts crying. He mentions dogs and crows have eaten the body. He questions the skeleton in the way that you described about its identity, its morality, its profession. And there are like 36 songs all sung to the same yeah. tune. And it's interesting to note that that sequence becomes longer and longer over time. We can trace that. Yeah. Uh, it starts out, we have an earlier sequence, which is uh, 16 songs. We have a shorter sequence. So for every new adaptation, it's a kind of challenge to make that sequence longer. Ah, well, that actually explains a lot. I mean, as you're reading through this as a reader, it's not um, just, you know, what is your name? What is your favorite color? It's like, hmm, maybe you were a woman. And maybe if you're a woman, you did these crimes. And it sort of reads as a list of possible ways of, you know, being um, uh, immoral. I mean, it's actually quite funny in some parts of this text, but it's quite detailed, right? Here are... It's really also a part where I think that the translation cries out for rhyme. So if there is somebody who has a really good facility for rhyme in English and who could do a rhymed adaptation of this, mm -hmm. I would be delighted. Wonderful. So listeners, pay attention. If any of you are up for that, get in touch with Wilt. No, you can... <laughs> or just do it yourself. Or maybe he can, they can send you the result. Um, yeah. Okay, so that's the first part of the text. And then there's a second part. He continues in this vein, you know, telling the skeleton, you must be caught up in a butterfly dream, um, talking about how wine or sex or money or rage uh, must have ruined the skeleton. And then he feels bad. And he revives it. So he puts a cinnabar pill in its mouth. He spits water on it. It revives. He gives it underwear. Um, so now the skeleton's alive, right? At that point, um, as you mentioned before, um, the skeleton who's now revived claims to have been a merchant on the way to the capital who was killed by a fatal disease, and he accuses Master Zhuang of stealing his belongings, his gold, his silver, his umbrella, and he drags him in front of the local magistrate. Okay. So at this point, um, Zhuang, just super quickly again, just to give listeners a sense of where we are, Zhuang proves his innocence by turning the skeleton back into a dead thing, showing the magistrate, look, I used three twigs to replace these missing bones. The magistrate is so impressed, he decides to leave his career and his family. He goes home to his wife, honey, you take care of the kids and the grandkids in the house. I'm out of here. He follows Master Zhuang's example, and he sings at the end of the text and speaks about how awesome life is after he leaves home. Okay, so this is like the big, this is the longest text, but there's also a shorter version of this um, that's uh, quite 
different, right? It's much shorter, it's much simpler. And in this version, the skeleton sings a bunch of songs while he's pleading his case. And it, it, the story here really kind of changes. Um, could you talk a little bit about that, about kind of, for you, some of the most well, interesting the first version uh, is an independent text, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, I don't know whether it's the original version, whether Mr. Tuhui put out a revised version, but it's an independent text, basically book legs. I think the translation runs to about 90 pages or something like that. In Chinese, it was a nice little booklet. Mm-hmm. <coughs> now, the other version is included in a novel by a very interesting guy, Ting uh, Yao Kang, who lived in the second part of the 17th century, wrote a sequel to the Jinping Mei, and like all the other writers from Shantung at this time, felt a great affinity to these kind of performative ballads and freely included them in his novel. And so he provides a description of somebody performing this novel and then cites enough of the, of the story to be a coherent whole. Probably he based himself not exactly on Tuhui's version, but on an earlier source they both shared. But anyway, he takes indeed a different take on it because in the first version, the skeleton is not given any songs of a month. He is just bad. Mm-hmm. He should be grateful for being revived. But no, when he is revived, he immediately wants money and uh, he is a typical greedy human being once again. Mm-hmm. Now, in the other version, he is allowed to make his case also before the judge. And what he does is claiming that Master Tuang is not the, uh, the goody he claims to be, but is actually a evil wizard who commits all kind of black magic, etc. Et like, like really bad stuff, like stealing the gallbladders and hearts of little kids to make drugs out of them, right? Like yes, that's stuff. all what people say about these evil Taoist masters who promise you life eternal by all kind of black magic mm-hmm. and terrible uh, medicines. Mm-hmm. All right. So this is, um, so it's, uh, that's a fascinating version of the story, but we get many, many more versions of the story and it just keeps on getting more and more um, interesting and complicated. So in the second chapter, you take us into a play um, from the late Ming, and this is Wang Yinglin's uh, Free and Easy Roaming. So this is a play that's written in a dramatic form, and the rendering of this story is quite different from what we saw above in the first two versions. So here, Master Zhuang's acolyte, who's translated as Echo Light, like first name Echo, second name Light, which I love. Well, it's a kind of, it reproduces a little Chinese word game. Uh, mm-hmm. in, the, in the Chinese text, too, uh, his name is split up in that way. And uh, Oh, I love that. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's one of the things I really love about the artistry of translation in the book. So this is 
Fred, just as a, an oral footnote, this is one of the reasons I was really excited to talk with you about this is not just because the book itself is great, but there's so many points like that that really showcase the thoughtfulness and playfulness and artistry of translation that makes this also, I think, a model for anybody thinking about the craft of translation and the kind of possibilities for working playfully and thoughtfully. So here, um, in this version of the story, Acolyte and the Magistrate are the objects of satire and derision. So can you talk a little bit about this version of the text for listeners? For you, what's, um, what are the most exciting or notable elements of this particular version of the story and text as it differs from what we've talked about already? Well, it's a play. It's a late Ming, so a late Ming short play. And in Chinese literature, we have basically overlooked the value of the late Ming because our interest in drama of the Ming goes mostly into Chuanqi plays, these very long plays by Tang Tu and others. Great plays, wonderful. But I would argue that the experimentation, the fun, the weird things, to a large extent, happen in these very short plays. And Wang Yingling is the case in point. I mean, he comes up with a story, adapts it for the stage, and instead of making it into a very general play about every man, uh, what a skeleton in a certain way is, human beings as without any gratitude, uh, motivated by greed, here we have the case the satire shifts to two very specific types. On the one hand, the servant, the acolyte, who is obsessed by money, and on the other hand, the magistrate, who is obsessed by fame. Uh, because very concretely, if he does not have a great case to his name, if he cannot show that he has solved a very troublesome law case, he will not make promotion. So when Zhuang and the skeleton first arrive at his uh, office, he is delighted. I mean, what greater case as a judge can you have on your resume than I solved a dispute between a Taoist master and a skeleton? <laughs> if you can solve that, your career is... Uh, complete. You will make promotion upon promotion. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the outcome is uh, quite uh, different because eventually both the acolyte and the, uh, the servant and the, the uh, magistrate become both servants of Master Zhuang, but then engage him in a philosophical discussion about his own Taoism. Is eternal life really that great? And they end up convincing Master Zhuang that actually, well, perhaps Buddhist emptiness is a higher ideal to pursue than a eternal life. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so it's a really, really interesting um, revision of while being also a retelling of the story in this other genre. And this, this just in, 
uh, continues to get more and more um, interesting and more and more complicated, actually, um, as we move into the book. So the third chapter takes us into a version of the story as it's embodied in a genre called a youth book, um, a zidishu, or a bannerman tale. And this is also um, particularly interesting, I think, for any listeners who work on Qing history who might be interested in um, there's a, a kind of genre of Manchu language work on um, stories that were transmitted in Bannerman tales. So this is a, a particularly interesting moment in terms of Qing Manchu literature or the ways that this might speak to a different field, right, of Manchu literature here. So this is a story um, called The Butterfly Dream, which, of course, is a reference to a very famous scene in Zhuangzi. And the story here changes in really, really interesting ways. So I'm going to kick this back to you now. Can you talk about um, the elements of the story that are introduced here um, that involve this widow and the wife um, to take listeners into that part of how this changes and, and maybe talk a little bit about this genre of Bannerman tales? Well, first there is the introduction of the uh, weeping widow and Zhuangzi's wife. And that comes from a well-known story in Feng Menglong San Yan, these uh, three collections of 40 uh, vernacular tales each that were printed in 1621, 1624, and 1627. And I think the Zhuangzi tale is uh, found in, in the 1624 collection. And uh, up to that time, that story is basically unknown. I have only found one reference to it in a uh, earlier text that is later edited out. So before 1620, the famous story about Zhuangzi in Chinese storytelling in the Chinese world is Zhuangzi's resurrection of the skeleton. Then once Feng Menglong has published his story of Zhuangzi, that story becomes the most famous Zhuangzi story. And that story tells us Zhuangzi has had his bottle dream, has become aware of the ephemerality of life, and is walking about and comes across a weeping widow. And then he asks her, what are you weeping about? And she says, well, my husband, told me that I could remarry as soon as the earth, this great mound, had dried. And so I'm speeding it up a little bit. <laughs> and Swang says, let me help you. And so he waves his fan once, and the grave mound, grave mound has dried, and the widow can walk off and can remarry. And then he comes home back to his wife, tells the story to his wife, and he says, what a lascivious woman. How come she does not stay loyal to her husband to the day of her death? I would never do that. And so Chuang fakes his own death. And then while the widow is mourning him and has not yet buried him, a prince enters who wants to pay his respect to the master, finds out he has died. The widow immediately falls in love with him, asks him to stay. The prince collapses 
the widow asks the servant of the prince, how come? Oh, well, this happens all the time, but we only have to feed him human brain and he will <laughs> Where do we get a brain? Well, says the servant, newly dead are fine too. You don't have to kill one. If there's somebody who has died less than three days ago, you can still use their brains. And so the widow goes off into the shed where she has placed a coffin with drunks carrying an axe, opens the coffin, and is about to split his skull when drunks rises from the dead mm-hmm. and says, I thought you would be a chaste, loyal woman. And she, of course, realizes that she has no life anymore and commits suicide. Mm-hmm. And Zhuangzi leaves the world and uh, becomes a hermit. Mm-hmm. Now that story was extremely popular. It was also one of the earliest Chinese stories translated into a Western language in the 18th century. And what you see, what is interesting in these uh, used books, these city uh, shu, these ballads from Beijing by Manchu authors is that in some cases they combine these two stories. And so uh, they either put the meeting with the skeleton first and then follow that with the meeting with the widow or they reverse the order both uh, possibilities occur but uh, because the story uh, these stories are combined. These ballads, the Manchu ballads, uh, are all written in Chinese, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, they uh, tend to be relatively short and uh, often quite funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this, this is fascinating. There are also Manchu language ballads um, that are written um, based on some of what seem like they might be um, the same stories uh, coming from these well, Chinese language banner material. So it's a really, I think, interesting opportunity to, to kind of... Well, to, uh, I once did a translation of the city uh, shoe on the story of uh, Meng Zhangnu, mm-hmm. and that comes with a partial Manchu translation. Mm-hmm. But I'm afraid it is rather, it's a translation of the Chinese. It's not the other way around. Right. And so uh, there is one famous dirty shoe that is partly in Manchu, partly in Chinese, about a rural Manchu who has moved to the city and wants to eat crap. (laughs) And uh, what my own personal take on that specific third issue is that it's making fun of rural Manchu whose command of Chinese is not enough. Mm-hmm. And so speak in this weird mixture of Chinese and Manchu. Oh, that's great. Uh, uh, Mark Elliott uh, did a English translation of that uh, that's text. Great. great. So this story, um, so thank you. <laughs> Thanks for talking about that. Um, so this story, or this version of the story that incorporates um, this, you know, the wife who becomes a, or the widow and then the wife and the brains and all that sort of stuff. Um, we see that also in a different genre, 
or we see a kind of version of that or retelling of that in the next chapter. And this is a chapter that looks at the genre of a precious scroll or a baodren. So the precious scroll of Master Zhuang's butterfly dream and skeleton is meant, um, or this genre as you describe it here, is meant, um, at least in part, to appeal to women in particular. And we see that actually playing out in, the ter- in terms of the structure of the story and the way it unfolds. Um, so can you talk maybe a little bit about um, this genre for listeners and about sort of the, the nature of this particular text? So I think you mentioned that this is a scroll that's only known um, from the collection of the, or a manuscript that's only known from the collection of the library of the Institute for Chinese Literature of the Academy of Social Sciences in Beijing, right? So, what, yes. so what's up with this genre? And can you talk a little bit about this, um, this manuscript? Well, finding Zhuangzi in Baozhen is a little bit weird because uh, Baozhen precious scrolls are originate as Buddhist storytelling. And uh, there's a little bit of debate about when it originates. Is it the 12th century? Is it the 13th century? Is it the 14th century? What is the first precious scroll? But from the very beginning, we have on the one hand a kind of a vernacularized ritual text, and on the other hand, pious stories told by monks and nuns to convert lay people, especially apparently women, uh, because one of our earlier sources for descriptions of performances of Precious Scroll is the uh, 16th century novel Tinping Mei, The Plum and the Golden Face, and there it's Simon Ching's wife. When she is bored, she asks for nuns to tell these, uh, to perform these uh, precious scrolls. Mm-hmm. And precious scrolls have remained popular in China well into the uh, 20th century, and there are regions of China especially the Wu dialect area around Suzhou, where even today precious scrolls are still widely uh, performed. And yes, they seem to appeal uh, uh, often more to uh, women than uh, to uh, men. But the story should, in principle, have a good moral and, of course, Originally, it's a Buddhist genre, so the stories about, are about uh, Quan Yin, are about Mu Lian, and so on. So to find the story of Zhuangzi's meeting with a skeleton, which is the archetypical example of Taoist storytelling in the genre of Pao Juan, of Precious Scrolls, is already a little bit remarkable. The other thing which is remarkable about this text is that, yes, it tells a story about Zhuangzi's meeting with the skeleton, but it then it also tells the conversion of the uh, magistrate, but it then follows the text with what originally was an independent text which had been revealed by spirit writing uh, by a completely different deity. And it first has a long section about morality for men, and then has a long section about morality for women. So it ends with 
how should women behave? And the interesting thing is that whereas in the earlier text, the magistrate leaves the family, the message is now very much saintliness, holiness is achieved by living a moral life in society. So there's absolutely no need to break with your family to go away. Just be a father, just be a husband, just be a wife, just be a mother in a good moral way. And that is your basic requirement to achieve a good life, a long life, to get a good rebirth in the holy Western paradise of Amitabha which is equivalent to a life eternal. Mm-hmm. And in fact, by the end of the text, we have Master Zhuang coming upon two servant girls, right, and giving them a lecture um, on how, you know, as servant girls, women should practice religion. And it's, yes. yeah, it becomes kind of much more encompassing or differently encompassing in a way from the other versions. Well, it seems to appeal to a somewhat lower level of society, mm-hmm. which would... Uh, fit in with uh, what we know about the genre by the end of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And yes, the only copy of the text I know of is this uh, manuscript that was is kept at the Shukhe Kushwe. So the, this text, it's a little bit different as well. It starts off um, with Master Zhuang as a white butterfly, right? And he transforms. He comes across the mourning woman. Um, the same deal basically happens with his wife. She commits suicide. The text then, uh, you know, adds a line, what a laugh after the suicide. So it's a little bit different, right? Then he leaves. He finds the skeleton in the abandoned grave. And, um, you know, you mentioned the kind of spirit writing text that's incorporated um, along uh, or around this point in the text or a little bit after. And that's actually um, really interesting from the craft, from the point of view of the craft of translation, right? I just want to mark that as a particularly interesting moment of um, translation practice. And you talk about um, rendering typographically or or on the page some of the characteristics of that kind of spirit writing. Um, Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Because that seems really important. But what is special there is that this particular text, not all spirit writing texts are written in this way, but this particular text is written in verse that is written in lines of 10 syllables. Mm -hmm. And such lines in Chinese come apart in three chunks. There's a first chunk of three characters, there's another chunk of three characters, and there's a final section of four characters. And that Caesura is very, very sharp. And so rather than running these lines into, at times, quite long lines, I decided to cut them up in three sublines. Uh, so you can see on the page that subdivision of this long line into three short lines, three syllables, three syllables, four syllables. And so, uh, especially in northern China, this ten-syllable line becomes extremely popular in all kind of uh, terms of uh, prosimetric storytelling, all kinds of uh, balladry, uh, 
over the course of the 18th, 19th uh, century. So thank you. Um, so as we move from this uh, really fascinating text to the last body chapter of the book, we move to a very different kind of telling of this story. And this is a modern parody. So this is the text by Lu Shun called Raising the Dead or Qi Si. And it's a story that was collected in a volume of short stories on retellings of ancient myths and legends, old tales retold. This is written as a kind of Western-style one-act play. So this story is really different from, um, in, in a lot of ways from the versions that we've seen above, and it's pretty hilarious. Okay, here we have a story that actually evokes sympathy for this resurrected skeleton who's basically left naked and poor. And in this version of the story, Master Zhuang is kind of a jerk. So do you want to maybe, or would you um, please just kind of introduce this story for listeners? Um, what's going on here? And can you talk us through some of the ways that Lucian is actually importantly changing um, what's going on? Well, I mean, Lucian comes at the end of a very long tradition. I put it there because I wanted to show that this story by Lucian does not go directly back to the Zhuang anecdote of 3rd century BC of Zhuang's meeting with a skull. When you see modern editions of the stories of Lu Xun, because this story had been translated a number of times before, also in Chinese annotated editions, all they will tell you is this is based on this very short anecdote in the Zhuangzi, the philosophical writings of Master Zhuang, where he describes his meeting with a skull. They will not tell you anything about the development of this motive in 2,000 years of Chinese culture, how the skull starts talking back, how uh, Zhuang, the skull, develops into a complete skeleton, how the skeleton becomes an acting uh, part, how the skeleton is first a direct object of satire, how he later is more a walk-on part. And so there is very little emphasis on what happened in those 2,000 years between. But Lu Xun probably heard the story when he was a child. And Lu Xun, as a student of traditional Chinese literature, especially of traditional Chinese fiction, at least knew the story as it was retold by Ting Yao Kang in the Xu uh, Jinping Mei, the sequel to the uh, Jinping Mei. He probably also knew the uh, stage uh, adaptation by Wang Yingling. So Lu Xun probably knew, or definitely <laughs> knew at least one or two of the traditional versions and probably quite a lot. And so he is uh, putting his own take on it. The other thing is that Lu Xun is writing a short story, but he is writing it in the format of a modern play, a quadrant. And Lu Xun does that a number, at least on one other occasion, also in his uh, Ye Cao, Wild Grass, his collection of prose poems. He has one prose poem written in the style of a one-act play. Personally, I would like to see 
is uh, adaptation uh, performed on stage. There's <laughs> a little problem because the uh, uh, skeleton, of course, is stark naked. And one of the issues is that he needs something to cover his nakedness. Well, you can do give him an extra big fig leaf to show <laughs> naked or whatever. Nowadays, you can put anything on stage, but it would make a hilarious play on stage. Oh, but absolutely, yeah. Lucien probably did not think that would be possible. But yes, the interesting thing about the adaptation is that the skeleton has been the bit of satire, the acolyte has been the bit of satire, the magistrate has been the bit of satire. Now it's Franz's turn to become himself the bit of satire. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, Lucien in his version, where he portrays Zhuangzi as this intellectual with all kind of wonderful grand schemes and all kind of uh, a wonderful general morality uh, about helping the poor and whatever when he is confronted with an actual case of his own making, when he is confronted with somebody who is really dirt poor, he refuses to help. And so it's very much, I think, a satire on a certain type of intellectual with grand schemes for the improvement of society, but with little personal morality in the direct meeting with uh, uh, your poor fellow men. Mm-hmm. In the uh, People's Republic, most critics want to link it up with uh, very specific discussions among left-wing authors in 1935, just before the death of Lucien. It's quite possible that that place is there in the background, but I think that uh, it's uh, you don't have to be so specific. And for to have fun with it, I mean... That type of intellectual who has uh, grand schemes to help humanity, but who are unwilling to help to come to the aid of concrete human beings, I think I'm afraid they are of every time and every place in the world. Mm-hmm. So that makes him a great uh, object of satire. I also like the walk-on part of Confucius because I think. <laughs> The policeman who comes onto the scene, Zhuangzi, for whatever reason, carries a police whistle. So he can call up any police, a policeman to help him out. And the policeman tries to be helpful, but eventually sides with authority. Right. I mean, so there's, so for listeners, um, and I and I absolutely hope listeners get a copy of the book and read this because it's it's really hilarious. Um, we have, you know, Master Zhuang's kind of a jerk. He basically he for anyone not as familiar perhaps with the Chinese literary um, tradition, but more familiar with a kind of um, dramatic tradition in other languages, he he almost becomes a kind of 
Faustian character um, in the tradition of Marlowe, right? He summons this master of fate to turn the skeleton into a living person, right? We have this kind of... And he's want, don't do it. Right. Exactly. I mean, sort of very similar to if you think back to Marlowe's Dr. Faustus, right? We have this kind of, I don't know if it's, it, it just feels like a kind of echoing. I don't know if there's any kind of genetic connection there, but this kind of echoing of this moment where Zhuangzi like summons, um, you know, the, the devil, I, or here it's the, this master of fate, right? To turn the skeleton into a living person, basically to kind of, as an intellectual exercise, right? He's basically like, oh. you know, think about the butterfly dream. We didn't know if you were dreaming or awake here. We don't know if the guy is, a, is dead or alive. So let's change him. And the master of fate does this. And he basically keeps asking the skeleton guy, what era he lived in. The skeleton guy is basically just really confused, right? He wants some clothes at one point, excuse my language listeners. He tells master Zhuang to fuck off. And then, you know, master Zhuang goes on his merry way. The police officer comes in and we end in this kind of altercation between the police officer, um, and, uh, and the skeleton. So it's a very different rendering of the play. And at one point in a footnote, I think you point out that there may be um, an explicit reference to the sort of skull of Yorick scene of Hamlet, right? Yes, there is a reference to famous place, foreign place, yeah. which probably refers to Hamlet because that's the great skull scene, of course, uh, in the Western uh, literature. I mean, that um, that moment, just again, for listeners um, who might be interested in um, using this text, not just as a, a scholarly reference and a reference for just kind of pleasurable reading, but also as a teaching tool, um, that chapter in particular might be a really interesting chapter to excerpt and use in a kind of um, world literature or global literature course, right? Sort of looking at. Um, yeah, and of course, I mean, for people who are interested in a comparative aspect, uh, I did not know this. I was innocent. <laughs> but it turned out that in the Muslim world, there is a uh, very popular legend of Jesus meeting with the skeleton, mm-hmm. and uh, which is found all over the Muslim world, in uh, the Maghreb, in Indonesia, in Central Asia. Mm-hmm. And uh, there it turns out that the skull uh, that is brought back to life was a great king once upon a time. So this theme of the meeting with of uh, a philosopher, a teacher, with a skull who is going to teach him the truth is uh, quite universal, apparently, throughout uh, Eurasia. That would make a great course, wouldn't it? Have you ever taught a course like that? No, I haven't. Someone should. Listeners, listen up. Someone should teach that course. And now you have this great... I think I like that you brought out that it's really a hilarious thing. Mm -hmm. We tend to teach Chinese literature too often as if everything is serious, (laughs) as if there's nothing to laugh about. But, I mean, uh, suddenly Lu Xun in this little story, which may have been the last one he ever wrote, is having a great time. Mm-hmm. Well, so, well, thank you so much for making the time um, to talk with me about this and for delaying dinner and all that sort of stuff. So there's a ton of material in the book, obviously, that we didn't have a chance to talk about. 
Is there anything in particular before we come to our close um, that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Well, the biggest thing, of course, with every author is buy that book. You will make me happy. <laughs> you will make the publisher happy. And in this time and age, publishers of this kind of materials need every support they can get. Uh, it's uh, publishing, academic publishing, and certainly this kind of translations. Uh, uh, I mean, they are not going to sell thousands upon thousands of copies. So I hope that people will indeed not only use it, but also buy it. So now that the book is out, and congratulations, I think it's clear um, that it's it's really a wonderful book on many, many levels. What's next for you? Is there anything that's um, currently inspiring you, and what are you working on now? Well, the book I'm actually working on right now is a collection of precious scrolls from Western Council. Hmm. And uh, I've been working on various genres, various topics in uh, prosimetric uh, literature because uh, you may know that I also wrote a chapter on prosimetric literature in the Cambridge history of uh, China. Mm -hmm. When we are dealing with Chinese literature of the Ming and Qing dynasty, we usually tend to focus on fiction and drama. That's great. But fiction and drama we focus on are the fiction and drama that were loved by literati. We nowadays are also focusing on poetry by women. We see an increasing number of books on classical poetry by men, also wonderful. And I hope to add to that at one moment uh, too. But it turned out that there is hardly anything available of the extremely rich literature, narrative literature, in prose and verse that was uh, performed and read all over China in a great variety of local genres. And if you start looking, it turns out that there are tons of text available. The great thing is that nowadays in China too, especially since China has discovered the intangible cultural heritage mantra, that the status of many of these genres has been greatly raised, that local governments are investing money in collecting and publishing these uh, materials to show how rich their local intangible cultural heritage is. And so I have been working on uh, translations. Uh, I sometimes focusing on a specific genre like the Tsurhua on uh, materials in women's script, sometimes focusing on a specific story like Long Jiang Nu or Yang Shan Point Juying Tai or The White Snake. And and I suppose this will be one of the last projects in that. At this moment, I'm working on precious scrolls from one particular part from China. And uh, it's a collection of one long, five shorter texts, which 
will contain two animal fables, uh, one story about a local female deity, the immortal maiden equal to heaven, and one text about somebody describing the terrible famine that struck the Northwest from 1927 to 1930 and how they survived while other people around them died. Wow. So it will be a quite very uh, collection. Well, I'm trying to finish that up right now. Well, good luck. Um, best of luck with that. Um, that sounds fabulous, and we'll look forward to reading that as well. But in the meantime, thank you so much for making time to talk with me today, and congratulations on the book. It's really been a pleasure. Well, thank you for this interview. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.